You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the characteristics of a committed disciple. We're calling Transformed Through Trust. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. So back in the 1960s, there was a professor out at Stanford named Dr. Walter Michel. And he was running tests on children. He ran several hundred children through uh, this test. And here we are all these years later, and we're still talking about it. There were four to five-year-olds, usually, uh, somewhere in that range. And they were talking about this thing. It's been known now as the marshmallow test. Maybe you've heard of it. It can still be implemented. It's still being uh, executed. And yet, it's this idea about delayed gratification, right? is that we could choose in that moment that we could either have something now or there might be something better in the future if we could practice delaying our own gratification in this moment. So how would you do? Well, we're moving into our next message in this series. uh, We're talking about being transformed uh, through trust. Now, this began back when we were talking about Psalm 125 uh, as a psalm of ascent leading up into Palm Sunday. And on that In that psalm, we have this message that says, is that he who trusts in the Lord can withstand whatever comes his or her way, is that in the midst of the decay that we see around us, that we can be immovable, that we could actually withstand whatever comes our way, unshakable. So we started talking about if that was possible, because I think so many of us might look around and say, how could that be? I mean, with what's going on in the world today, is it really possible? that we could stand our ground and be so transformed in our faith that we actually could withstand whatever comes our way and remain firm in our faith. Now, it was against that backdrop, we started talking about if that trust existed, what would be the characteristics of that person? So we've been talking through those for the last couple of weeks. And that's what brings us to our message today, is that we see this verse in Matthew 16, 24. Now, this verse is recorded for us in three of the Gospels. Each time there's a little variation in the context, but the main part of the verse is exact in three different passages. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, as you look at this, you would see there's actually three statements there that are worthy of our study. So what we're going to do is this, is over the next three weeks, we're going to take one week on each of those things. And so there'll be a little overlap if you're here for all three of those messages. So today, what we're going to look at is specifically that first part about what it means to deny yourself. Is it possible that we could delay our gratification in this life, recognizing that there might be something more to come that we would say is worth it if we could actually lean into that at a level that we would say, I want to deny myself. So if we move into this, let's begin with this Mark passage. Now, in this passage, here again, the main part of the quote that Jesus offers us is the same. It's identical. But the context changes. Here is, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, excuse me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, if we look at just the quote, I want to call attention to something here that you and I might look at and say, what I'm about to tell you is not revolutionary at all. It may be so simple that you'd be like, why is he even wasting his time telling us this? But I think what Jesus wants to say is, if anybody would come after me, then come after me, right? 
I could change the word to follow. If anybody wants to follow me, then follow me. Now, you can say, Lance, really? That's what we're here for? Let me ask you this. How many disciples would you say are walking around saying, oh, I'm a disciple, I follow Jesus, and our life looks nothing like his? See, did I just make my point? Because what he says is, if you want to come after me, then come after me. Because the idea that somebody would say, I'm going to come after you, but go on your own tangent, that doesn't make any sense. Now, we can say that it's illogical. Why would we say that? Well, let's be honest. If when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about our Savior, and we start talking about the attributes that he has, think with me about what we know to be true about him, that Scripture lays out just clear as day. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He never learns anything. He's omnipotent. He has all the power. He can sustain everything. He can bring about anything and bring everything that he promises to pass. He's not just has the attribute of love. He's the perfection of love. Now, if that is true, that he loves you, he's all-powerful, he can sustain and fulfill any promise he makes, He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he says, I am all in on you. Follow me. Can you imagine how ludicrous it would be that we wouldn't follow him? And yet, don't we see that every day? Don't we see that every day in a moment-by-moment decision that you and I find ourselves saying, I know the Lord is calling me here, but in this moment, I choose to do the other thing. Because all of a sudden, that moment, it makes really no sense at all why we could ever do this. Now, what I would tell you is following him is active. It's not just mental assent. It's not the idea that says, okay, I get it. I need to follow him. I'm going to follow him. And it really isn't an act so much that we would say uh, that I am going to uh, be passive in this as much as the idea that I step into this. Is that if he's the Lord Jesus Christ and the word Lord isn't his first name, it's a title. He's the master. So the moment we call him Lord is the moment that we say, you're the authority and I'm not. Because he's not looking for a co-pilot. He's saying, I'm going to pilot. If you're going to have me pilot, then let me pilot and you get behind me. I'm not asking you to be side by side with me. I'm asking you to follow. Because if you would follow me, then follow. Now, think with me. I can say it's illogical that we wouldn't, but let me ask you this, and I will own all of this, and you can apply this if this applies to you or not. I know that if I eat a healthier diet and I exercise, that I will feel better and be healthier. Now, that's not a huge statement, right? Everybody could say that. Now, if I were to ask you, do I reflect that behavior when I walk into a buffet, you and I might say it doesn't look like it, right? Now, it's not rocket science to say, eat healthier, exercise more, feel better, be healthier. And yet we can sit here and say, well, if you want to be healthy, then eat healthier. And when we come to our faith, we've got this over and over and over again. There's this call that's there that he invites us to follow him with the idea that says, if you follow me, then get in line and follow me. That's the invitation for every disciple. But we come to this point of why would that be so significant? Why is that a struggle for us? Now, if you're following on the version app, this will make no sense. But if you've got a written outline in front of you, I invite you to pull that out and I invite you to pull out a pen 
because there is such an egregious mistake on this outline that you have before you. And I'm telling you, I worked through this tons of times, and I still missed it until yesterday morning at about 6 a.m. You ready? If you look at your outline, Roman numeral two, here's what's so bad about it. It's not a typo. It's not that I misspelled a word or missed, missed a, uh, a punctuation mark. I actually say in this point the exact opposite of what I'm about to teach you. It's that bad. Okay, which is why you got to pull out a pen. I cannot have this sit out there and have you think that I actually believe what this thing says, all right? Here we go. Roman numeral two, it should read as follows. The committed disciple understands that indwelling sin has left his or her mind compromised. What I want you to do is I want you to grab a pen and where it says heart and, I want you to put a line through the words heart and, Okay. The committed disciple understands that indwelling sin has left his or her mind compromised and in need of transformation. Why is that a big deal? Let me tell you. This verse is a verse that gets used a bunch. You may be familiar with it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I hear people, I hear believers use this all the time. And when they use it, it typically is in this sense that they did something that was so incompatible with what they say. I'm going to follow Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus. But when they find his or herself in a position where they say, whatever I did, whatever behavior I exhibited was so out of line, and then it's this. Man, I don't know. I couldn't do anything about it. My heart's deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick, man. It jumped up and grabbed me and took me out. Hear that so many times. Maybe you've said that. I would tell you I've said it before too. Here's the problem with that. Ezekiel, prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a what? A new heart. Why would you need a new heart? Because the old heart is deceitful. It's desperately sick. We need a new heart. And I, with part of that new heart is I'm going to put a new spirit. I'm going to put that within you. I'm going to remove that heart of stone, that heart that's deceitful and desperately sick. I'm going to pull that heart out, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that's beating, it's alive, it's vibrant. It's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. See, this heart cannot be desperately sick. It cannot be deceitful. Why? Well, Ezekiel goes on to say, I'm going to put my spirit within you. It's going to cause you to walk in my statue. That heart can't be sick. It can't be deceitful because it's what empowers you and I to walk with the Lord. That's why we've got to understand this. Jeremiah carries on the same idea, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. All of a sudden, the idea that this new heart that we have, there was a heart of stone, it was desperately sick, it was deceitful. We came to faith in that moment. God pulled out that heart. He put a new heart that's alive and it's beating and it's indwelt by the Holy Spirit and God's law is written upon it. We've got a compromised mind coming out of Genesis 3 in the fall. But because of that, we needed a new heart. And so the world is operating on a heart that is desperately sick and is deceitful. But the person who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ has found his or herself in a position where God took out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. 
And all of a sudden, you have a new capacity to walk with the Lord, to be indwelt by the Lord, that his law is written on your heart. How does that play itself out? Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 7. This is a passage where Paul is writing about the most human thing we could ever imagine. If you ever read the scriptures and you're like, I can't identify with that. These people are super Christians. You read Paul and you're like, well, my goodness, of course that's Paul's take on things because he's like the super apostle. He wrote half the New Testament and all those things. Until you get to Romans chapter 7. And then Paul goes into this thing where it's almost like he's fumbling through his words. He's like, I don't do what I want to do. I do the very things I don't want to do. Matter of fact, what I want to do, that's not what I do at all. I do the exact opposite of what I want to do. And if you read that, I will tell you that liberal commentators and scholars all say that Paul doesn't know the Lord, that Paul is unaware he hadn't come to faith yet. Now, part of the ridiculousness of that would be the person that thinks Paul wrote Romans chapter 1 through 7 as an unbeliever. That's foolish. But it gets even more foolish when you understand what happens in chapter 7. Look down with me, if you would, starting at verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What's he saying? He's saying this, is that new heart, that heart of flesh that is indwelt by the Spirit that's living and breathing and pumping out that seeks to bring righteousness, to live out righteousness, that's there. But he's just come through a whole thing that says, I don't do what I want to do. Matter of fact, I do the very opposite of what I want to do. He says, what I know to be true is this, is in my inner man, my inner woman, I joyfully concur with the law of God. What is most true about me is that I long to live out of that heart, but I live in the reality that the members of my body, my hands, my feet, my legs, my mind, my mouth, all of it is attacking that heart all the time. And if we really want to be honest, how often we spend our life arming and preparing the members of our body to wage war against our soul without arming our soul. We find ourselves in problems. And so when all of a sudden he comes back, I find this to be true. See, I would defy you to show me the unbeliever that could say verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner man or woman. That is it. No unbeliever has ever said that. That's why Paul can't be an unbeliever when he writes this. He said, but I find it to be true that sin is reigning in the members of my body and it is constantly attacking my soul. That good heart and dwelt by the Spirit with God's law written upon it. What's most true about us believers, brothers and sisters in Christ is this, is your greatest calling is to walk with the Lord and to honor the Lord and to manifest that in everything that we say or do. And so often we live out our lives as though I'm one book away, I'm the new study Bible away, I'm the new podcast away, I'm the new whatever book away from figuring it all out. And what I would tell you is this, you do not need anything else in you. You have everything you need with that new heart, with God's law written on it, that's been indwelt by the Holy Spirit to live the life you're you're called to live. And yet, you can still have Paul write what he writes. So verse 24, wretched man that I am, who's gonna deliver me from this body? I can't get past it. He sounds so defeated. And then he answers the question, another way we know he's a believer. He answers this question, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
And look at where he goes. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. What's the condemnation? It's not salvation condemnation. He already answered that question in the previous verse. The condemnation is a self-condemnation. His defeat. I'm never going to get better. Who's going to save me from this wretched body of death? He answers the question. That's why it's not salvation condemnation. It's self-condemnation. Now, there's two different Greek texts that people draw translations from. There's one, the one that the New King James uses, I think, really helps us understand what Paul's saying here when he writes this. There is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Sound familiar? Here's where it differs. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That self-condemnation will always be there when we're not walking in the Spirit. The self-condemnation comes when we start walking in the flesh. Why can't I do better? I thought I was past this. Why can't I perform better? Why can't I defeat this? Why is this still there? Versus the person who walks in the Spirit that says, you know what? I'm a work in progress, but God's grace is strong in my life, and I continue to walk. Now, what's really great about this, if you know Romans 8, and if you don't, I'd encourage you to read all of Romans 8 today. But every bit where Romans 7 sounds like defeat, Romans 8 sounds like victory. Where you hear, see a demoralized Paul in Romans 7, you see an enlivened Paul in Romans chapter 8. And I would put before you, I think the reason for that is this. There are zero mentions of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 7, and there are 21 mentions of the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. When we look back at the translation, there's no condemnation for those who walk not according to the flesh, Romans 7, but walk according to the Spirit, Romans 8. And all of a sudden we can say, okay, okay, I see it. So how do I live this out? What does it look like for me to lean into this in a way that we can? Now, if you've lived the Romans 7 experience, which I have, and I'm guessing you might have tasted that before too. I don't do what I want to do. As a matter of fact, I do the very things I don't want to do. That we as brothers and sisters in Christ can see how much of a mess we can make of our life relatively quickly. And if you don't know the Lord, then you would say, all I've ever had to operate from was a desperately sick, deceived heart. That's all I got. Here's the good news. Is the Lord wants to step into your life and take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He wants to do that for you, that you might be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that you might be redeemed, that you might walk with him, that he might write his law in your heart, that you would know that he will never leave you or forsake you. He is absolutely in love with you, and he wants you to have a vibrant relationship with him. If you're here this morning and said, I only know the desperately sick heart, that's all I've ever experienced, know this. The Lord Jesus Christ came and lived on this earth and put on flesh and went to that cross to pay the penalty of sin, which was we were eternally separated from God, but he paid that penalty. And as he paid that penalty and he walked out of the grave on day three, he offered you and I a chance at life based on what he did on the cross. And we move into that relationship by Jesus. I believe you did that for me. And just like that, we've been freed from the penalty of sin. We've been freed from the power of sin. And one day we'll be freed from the presence of sin, but we're not there yet. But all of a sudden, you and I can walk in a Romans 8 experience because all of us know Romans 7. And you're longing for a Romans 8. And that is found in walking with the Holy Spirit. Is this too much to ask? Well, look at what our Lord said. Our Lord, the one who says, if you want to follow me, then follow me. This is what he says. When people are concerned, like, Jesus, you're not eating. You need to eat. Jesus turns around and says, hey, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
a daily process of saying, Lord, I am going to deny self. I'm not the captain of my life. I'm relinquishing my goals, my ambitions, my desires, because I'm not omniscient. I'm not omnipotent. I'm not the perfection of love. I don't know all those things, but you do, and you invite me to step behind you. So I'm going to do that. So Jesus, God in the second person, the Son in his flesh says, hey, I even know that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He's got me on mission. He's the captain. It's not me. It's him. And when you do that enough days, it prepares you for when you find yourself in a Luke 22 moment. And he was withdrawn from them and about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed and said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. This is God in the second person of the Son that says, you know what? My calling is to do what the Lord, my Father, calls me to do. Same as our calling. And if you think, well, I mean, I'm pretty smart. I really know my Bible. I think what God wants me to do is this. And God says, no, just follow me. Do what I'm calling you to do. Jesus is doing the same thing. And by the way, if you've ever been in a moment where you thought, I'm the only one who doesn't get their prayers answered, why is it God answers everybody else's prayers? I've been praying for this forever, and he still hasn't come through for me. All I know is I'd put you in pretty good company because Jesus, the son, said, I'd ask you to take this this cup from me, saying, I don't want to go before the cross. You know, what's really interesting about that is I think for so long, I read that because of living in our day and age, as I think, you know what he's praying about? I think for so long, I believed that what he was praying about is, I really don't want to be beaten. I don't want to be abused. I don't want the nails. I don't want the crown of thorns. I don't want any of that. And we, we never hear him groan or mourn the beating. You know what he groans about? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is it for him the idea that he could be separated from the Father was so great that I think that that's what he's praying when he prays this prayer? And then he says, you know what? But if that's what it's going to take, that's what it's going to take. And obviously the Lord said, I can't let this cup pass from you. This is the very difficult path you're going to be on, but know this. I always work all things together for the good for those who love me and are called according to my purposes. And so while this is grueling, while this is anguish, know this. I'm at work in this, and I will use your death and your resurrection to bring together the entire church, and we will experience salvation, and we will redeem humankind. What a message. And that's what happened. But even Jesus is saying, you know what? In the end, I'd like to, I'd like to bypass this. And God says, you can't. And he says, okay, then I'm all in. And he denies himself, and he steps into this in such a level that he begins to move into it. If you've ever felt like your prayers were not getting answered, you're in pretty good company. So what do we do? Why is it so difficult? John writes in 1 John in his epistle these words, for all that's in the world, and catch these three things, three things, these three things in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's not from the Father. That's not from the new heart that's alive and beating with God's law written upon it and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's the old way. That's the old heart, the heart of stone, okay? Three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. How long has that been in play? I'm glad you asked. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. See if you can't follow those three things in this passage. So that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desires of the flesh. There was a delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes. 
and that the tree was desired to make one wise, pride of life. All three things in this world, the only three things this world can appeal to, all of them are there in the very first sin. She took of its fruit and ate. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. I've got a working hypothesis. And if one of you can come up with this, I invite you to grab me or email me or do something. I have yet to become, come to a point where I could struggle with a sin in my life or in somebody's life I'm visiting with that I cannot draw back to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the pride of life. I think every sin that we still deal with in this world can tie back to one of those three things. Why is that a problem? Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to keep this passage up here for reference as we read through this. Galatians chapter 5. If you've got a copy of Scripture, I invite you to turn there with me. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 16. Here is the battle that every one of us is facing. Paul writes this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay? Here's your imagery. You can't miss it. There are two teams. There's the works of the flesh, and then there's the fruit of the Spirit. Those two things cannot coexist. Works of the flesh, they're all going to be tied to the desires of the, the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, every one of them. And they're doing battle at every moment that would prevent us from manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Because again, the fruit of the Spirit is what's going to come from this new heart. It longs to manifest itself. But we've spent so much of our life arming the members of our body to wage war against it, it feels like it's losing the war so often, which is, I think, what Paul is saying when he writes that in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Like, you could never confuse these things with the spiritual life. It's really, really clear. This isn't rocket science. You and I can figure this out. And then he gives you several types of sins. He begins with sexual sins, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Nobody's going to mistake those as spiritual, the spiritual life. Religious sins, idolatry, idolatry, sorcery. Yeah, those are off limits. Then look at the relational sins. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. All of that breaking apart the unity that we have is clearly evident. That's his words, not mine. And then he talks about two decadent sins. We talk about drunkenness and orgies and revelries and things like these. And then he says, I warn you, and I warned you before, these things do not inherit the kingdom of God. But you know, that little phrase in verse 21, and things like these, he highlights sexual sins, relational sins, relational sins, these debauchery sins. And he says, look, these things are evident. You know that this isn't the spiritual life. This isn't what the new heart longs to do. That's, that's incompatible with that. That's the members of your body winning the war against your soul. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the very things I don't want to do. And then he turns around and says, look, this list isn't, ex isn't exhaustive. I mean, there's no way that Paul could have known the kind of stuff that would be in our world in 2023. But I'll tell you what, when we see behaviors that lead to these kind of sexual sins, religious sins, relational sins, and decadent sins, 
Make no mistake, that's still a work of the flesh. Where does it stem from? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That stuff is not compatible. That's why we've got to learn how to deny ourselves. He goes on and says this, verse 22, what, is it, what does the other look like? Here's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit talks about a change of your mind, the habits of your mind, love, joy, peace. You now have a capacity to reach out to others in things like patience, kindness, goodness. You now have a new way to conduct yourself in this world, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's a new way to live. Why do we deny ourselves? We deny ourselves because while our heart's good, we've got a mind and other members of our body waging war against that soul. And you and I left our own devices, we'll always go after the things that are the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's where we go. That's why we've got to learn to deny ourselves. Lord, I'm going to follow you, so I'm going to get in line behind you. I'm not offering to be here. I'm certainly not taking the lead, and I'm certainly not separating from you. I'm following you. I'm going to get right behind you, and I'm going to let you lead my life. I relinquish my ambitions, my dreams, my desires, because mine were all faulty. And they probably had some level of desires of the flesh, the, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. But you, you're the omniscient one. You're the all-loving one. You're the omnipotent one. You're the one that's for me. You gave your son for me. Of course, I'll get in line behind you to do this and live this out. Well, in what realm? Well, let's begin with the soul. This is Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus looking at you and I, because I think I can take this for granted. If I were to say, do you want your life to matter and be a life that produces fruit and moves and leaves the world a better place than you found it? If you would say yes, then here's Jesus' answer, is we got to let our grain, our personal grain of wheat fall in the ground and die so that it might bear fruit. And that happens when we relinquish control of our life to the Lord. That's where that begins. Otherwise, I'm living it for myself. I will follow, excuse me, I will live my life alone. I will remain alone because I'm driven by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So he turns around and says, you know what? There's another way. It doesn't have to be this way. Our soul can change. Our needs can change. This is when Jesus is getting tempted. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, yeah, you and I would be too, right? And then he says, the tempter, we know that to be Satan, comes and says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you read through the three temptations that he does to Jesus in the wilderness, guess what they hit on? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Go read it in Matthew 4. You'll see all three of them. This is just one of them. You know what? You're really hungry. It's been 40 days. You could show off the pride of life. You could turn those stones into loaves of bread. Just do it, Jesus. Show everybody who you are. Have this great, powerful display of who you are. And by the way, get a little food out of it. It'd be great. I know you're hungry. Jesus, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, see, he's got it. He's got it. His needs are met. All of a sudden, the things that he desires are met. Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes about this. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. Behold, it's all vanity. It's inconsequential. It's just like drifting through your fingers. You can't hold on to things in this life. So striving after the wind. What's crooked cannot be made straight and what's lacking cannot be counted. And if we're really honest, how much of our life is spent trying to make straight what's already been made crooked? And Jesus, God is the one that offers us this, this testimony. 
where goes, Solomon goes on to say this, Behold, I've seen what's good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life is given. The fact that you and I could find enjoyment in this world, that in and of itself is a gift from God. This world is broken, is crooked. We can't make it straight. And we keep trying, which will only frustrate it. The reality that if we find the ability to enjoy something in this world, that's a gift from God. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in that toil, this is the gift of God. What God has given you, he has given for your enjoyment and your fulfillment. Embrace that. That's a gift from him. But know this, when all said and done, brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you eat or drink or whatever it is you do today, we do all of that to the glory of God. All of it. Because he is the one we are following. We're not side by side as co-pilots. We're not taking the lead. We're not separating from him. He's here. We're here. Where you go, I will go. And he begins to lead, and we follow. You want to talk about part of the problems we see in the world? I think Brennan Manning offers us some great counsel here when he says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, and they walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyles. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Imagine with me the world that says, oh, your God's omniscient? He's all loving, he's just, he's omnipotent, he can do everything, he's committed to you, and you say you're all in on him, but he calls you to do this, and you decide I'm gonna do that? What in the world? What does your faith matter? See, those are hard questions that really deserve some answers. And if they don't deserve answers, I promise you they they deserve a little bit of self-reflection. If he's calling me to follow him, and I'm choosing not to, then either my beliefs about who he is is wrong or I'm wrong for not being behind him. See, those are really strong things. Let's go back to where we began. Delay of gratification. The act of resisting an impulse to take an immediately available reward in the hope of obtaining a more, excuse me. The act of resisting an impulse to take an immediately available reward in the hope of obtaining a more valued reward in the future. So, you want one marshmallow now? Or would you like a second marshmallow? Because the first marshmallow says, I want it now. I'm going to control my own life. I will grab the reins, my ambitions, my dreams. All of that's what matters. Or could it be that there is a better reward that maybe sounds like this one day when we walk through the gates of glory and we get to hear the precious words from our Savior saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.